Hey, 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 welcome into another episode of a Grinding True Crime podcast with your host, Eddie Matt, along with our narrator, Todd Fox, and our other host of the show, Big Renee. Welcome in, everybody. Uh, this is a uh, crime podcast for those who are new to the show. For those who are not new, thank you for following us. Once again, it's to find our previous recorded shows. You can find us on iHeartRadio. Podbean, Spotify, just look us up under the Grinding True Crime Podcast. Last week was a really good one. This week is going to be a really good one. And how I know that is because just a few minutes ago, boy Todd told me to give you guys a disclaimer. He said for those in the audience who have a weak stomach and is squirmish to blood or gore or whatever, be advised and be warned, you are warned on this one. First time <laughs> Never told us this. Is that right, Renee? Yes, it is. It's like we're like bound to be a good one, man. Man, that's bound to be a good one, man. So uh, enough of enough of my talking. Todd, tell us about this one, please. I have a little theme. Oh, I have a little theme song with this one. So uh, let's see if you could uh, see who I'm talking about. Okay. Who can take a sunrise? Sprinkle it with the dew. Oh, Willy Wonka. Chop it out the miracle or two. It's Candyman. Oh, Candyman. Candyman. Fly guy. <laughs> See, he says he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. Not in this case. <laughs> he is I'm a- all, you got my attention already, man. You got my childhood. <laughs> well, he's he is called the Candyman. This is going to refer to Gene Coral. And Dean Coral, yeah, Dean Coral was born one day short of Christmas in 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was the oldest child of his family. He had a very strict but distant father and a loving mother. <clears throat> his father had it tough with the Depression years, losing jobs, going back and forth. The parents divide. Uh, oh, can you hear me? The volume? Is it better? Okay. So, uh, and they divorced in 1946. Okay. Uh, they moved from uh, Indiana later that year to be closer to the father who had moved down there for military purposes and worked in 1945. Uh, Dean was a shy kid having uh, trouble relating to other kids, but had a soft side for animals and uh, other kids or seeing people struggling like the homeless or whatever, or kids being bullied. So he always had like a soft spot for those kind of people. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. At the age of six to eleven, I don't know if you guys know, but what rheumatic fever is, but rheumatic fever? Yeah, rheumatic fever. Mm-hmm. No, it's basically um, from the age of six to eleven, he suffered with fever, uh, swelled joints, um, heart and skin uh, that that um, that would also be swollen at times. Um, he, uh, he had severe strep throat, also joint pain. Uh, jerky palpitations, like just sudden urges of, of, of arm movements, leg movements. Uh, he had he developed all kinds of rashes, small bumps. Very painful through these five years. It went undiagnosed. Can you believe that? They didn't oh, know yeah. what it was. For, for all that time? For five years, they had no idea what it was. Wow. So, so going to school, he really didn't uh, – he was really – he couldn't play sports. He couldn't, um, a lot of kids looked at him weird because he, he would have just break out in rashes or have like weird twecky movements. 
Are you serious? Yeah. So he was kind of uh, he was kind of the oddball of the school from the start. Dang. Oh wow. Yeah, not good. Um, and then back in the day too, um, he basically in high school wasn't the sociable type either. He was kind of a, lo a loner. He, mm -hmm. he he developed a heart murmur. Um, he was pr pretty much a, a often teased kid. Uh, but he finished up in high school in 1958 uh, with his, or no, 1956, uh, okay. with his stepfather when they were living in uh, the Houston area. They had moved from Memphis to Houston. And he got a job working at a candy store in a candy factory, a warehouse, all, in, all three in one. Is that why he's called the candy man? That's part of it that leads to oh. it. <laughs> So, uh, in 1958, though, when he finished high school, um, he, uh, he, he left to Indiana with his mom who lived there for a couple of years. And, uh, he dates a woman for like two years. So he's about like around 19, 20 years old, finds a girl. She asked him to marry her and his, uh, his thoughts or his decision was no. He decided not to <laughs> decided not to marry her. Wow! And uh, his mom had already uh, had gone back to Houston uh, a year later. So he followed her down to Houston. She decided to set up a candy store, knowing what she knew from her previous husband. And it had a factory, and it had a warehouse. And you know, here's. He became, she makes him basically vice president of the candy store and of the candy factory. Okay. Now, twist number one. Twist. Here's the twist. Here's the twist. Um, he gets, he gets uh, one day, well, you know how I always tell you that there's always these, 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 uh, these things that happen that basically define or give a serial killer the green light to go ahead with what they're doing. Or where they could be stopped in their yeah. tracks, but then, you know, whatever reason things don't go there, uh, that don't go against them should go against them. Don't, and then they get away with it. Mm -hmm. Well, here's one of the here's one of the first ones. So one day, a teenager, which he hired a lot of teenagers to work for him, um, came to a complaint to the mother, saying, "You know what? Your son asked for a sexual favor from me." The and, boy. Yeah, boy. So like a 16, 17 year old boy. Okay. So uh, what would you do in this situation if it were nowadays? If one of my friends, a male friend came up to me and asked for a sexual favor? For a worker at work. Say, oh, no, yeah. say, say for instance, you're in charge and one of your workers, uh, another underage kid or someone came to you and said, hey, one of your workers was hitting on me. What do you do about it? He's gone. Or at least he investigate, then he's gone, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, she fired the boy. The mom fired the boy. So no investigation, no slap on the wrist. Moving on. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so uh, fast forward a couple years. It's I don't, don't blame her, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> she was like, he was just asking for sweets, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, right. So, uh, in 1964, he was drafted 
to the military because of, you know, you had Vietnam raging, right? Uh -huh. Now, like I told you again, here's another one of those cases with the brakes and these cycles get a green light and get, get a, you know, get a get, get out of jail free pass card or whatever. Here's what happened. In 1964, he's drafted. He goes into the military, goes to the training, gets shipped overseas. He doesn't like it there. Like nobody liked it over there. And mm -hmm. so many of the guys and kids and young ones wanted to get out of Vietnam, but they were stuck. So what happened was they did have a little clause, though, where you could use a hardship program saying you were the provider for your family. Mm -hmm. He filed for that and got it. What? There's like a 5% chance of getting that, and he got it. What? Damn. So instead of so instead of staying over there, where half his platoon was wiped out in one of the uh, engagements with the, the um, what is it called? The, what were they called again? The Viet Cong or whatever? Viet Cong. The Viet Cong. Yeah. Half his platoon was wiped out. Dean would have been in there, and he might have suffered the same fate. Dang. Instead... He came home to run the candy store. So he got out in late 1965 from the military. He returned to Houston to take over operations of the candy store or in candy factory. It's at this time he begins to realize, hey, I'm gay. And yeah. He just not realized <laughs> He just realized I'm pretty much gay. Jeez. And back then in 65, you can't exactly walk around with a rainbow around your, you know, rainbow shirt. and No. And you can't be dressed like Russell Westbrook or any of these other. Uh, <laughs> so, not even a Cam Newton? No, not even Cam <laughs> Newton, man. No heel. You know. um, too far. <laughs> <laughs> so, his, so his company um, is just across the street from Helms Elementary School. And this is where he began to get the nickname, the candy man, because he favored teen boys and would give a lot of kids after school uh, candy. And, and also, uh, you know, just free candies and, and, and trips and, and uh, what do you call it? Uh, walk arounds his, his factory, giving out candy to them. He even put in a pool table so that they'd stay after school longer. So he's, he's in his like, Mid or late twenties or in his thirties by now? He's in his late twenties at this point. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So uh <clears throat> he um he befriended a twelve year old boy named David, taking him to the beach and on Not fishing God. fishing trips. <laughs> David began to uh, view him like an uncle, you know what I mean? Like the father figure type thing. Not good. No. But and eventually not... Huh? No, that's not good at all. <laughs> no. So uh Eventually, it gets bad, and when he takes advantage of uh, uh, David, you know, David kind of, like, doesn't know what to think because he hasn't really had a father figure, an uncle figure, and he kind of just went with it. So he started to groom him as far as the psychopaths do, where it, like, it becomes like a Stockholm syndrome to where they, against their predator, they start to feel the love. And mm -hmm. no matter what Dean did... David stayed loyal, never spoke up, never said nothing. And um, he began to, uh, to to groom the boy to just maybe do his bidding and, well, help him out with certain things. So he, oh. offered, he gets a couple years older, like 16, 17 years old. <clears throat> it's approaching 1970 at this point, right? So it's five years later. Right. He's, 
about 17 years old, he asked him, um, hey, um, if I bought you a Corvette, would you be able to recruit, you know, maybe some teenage boys for me? I'll pay you $200 per kid. So David goes, okay. Wow. Pimping them out. Yeah. So he, so David's, David's response is like, okay. Wow. Not, not even thinking of it. Nothing of it. Nope. Nope. Yeah. By then, five years into being traumatized as a kid or groomed, I guess you're you're like, oh, all right, you know, let's roll with it. Uh, so this starts to lead us down our uh, dark um, cave of uh, mist, not mystery, but just of death and destruction. Mm-hmm. In 1970, a hitchhiker, so you know that's not going good. Nope. From the University of Texas, Jeffrey Conan was picked up by Dean. His body wasn't found till 1973. Dean picked him up and handcuffed him, then took him back to the house where he sexually assaulted and then strangled him to death and then gagged his mouth to make sure he was dead. Dang. Yeah. No bueno. Dang. His body, we'll get to that. His body and others wouldn't be found for three years. Jeffrey like. Jeffrey likely took a ride because Dean lived off Yorktown Street in Houston, which is near where he lived in West Hymere Road in Houston, which is just down the street. Um, so unfortunately, on December 14th, uh, that, that was see, Dean did the first murder by himself. Here's where David would come into play. He would pay yeah. David 200 per kid for, you know, the recruit, as I said before. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, on December 14, 1970, he got two boys by the names of James Glass and Denny Yates, where he lured them from a church event to Dean's house. Now, let me explain what happens at Dean's house. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah. At this point, um, he had a torture table with where it, was, it would stand straight up like a gurney, mm-hmm. and he would strap their arms and legs to it and you could manipulate it in different positions, whatever. You just, you know, let your mind roll with that. Okay. Yeah, he had he had chains, he had whips, he had all kinds of torture devices, and he could lay the 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 bed flat as well. So, this wasn't just a thing where, you know, he would torture him for a little bit and kill him. At times, he kept him for three or four days. Now. Wow. And this is an apartment. This is not a house. Really? So at some point... You would think people would hear. Yeah. There's no... Um, this entire time that this entire infractions happened, nobody said anything. Nobody uh, got a little curious about people coming but never really leaving. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I just put that in your mind for right now. Um that was the first tough one right there. Uh, so those two. Wow. Huh? No, I'm just saying, wow. Yeah. That's crazy, man. Both those boys were only 14 years old. And they would never be seen again. So at this time, the same creepy vice president of the candy store and factory would just be cruising around the freaking neighborhood, giving out candy to those, acting like he was just a nice, you know, young man or whatever mm. over there creeping on the neighborhood kids and doing detestable things at the house 
or at the apartment. Ugh. That's gross. So six weeks later, on January 30th, uh, 1971, Brooks and Coral encountered two teenage brothers, Donald and Jerry Waldrop. They were both uh, good bowlers and aspired to be, uh, start a team in the bowling league. They were lured by one of Dean's own candy vans by David and uh, took in them. They were took back to the house, handcuffed, raped, tortured, and strangled. Between March and May of 1971, Dean Quarrel abducted and killed three more victims, all who lived locally in the Houston Heights area. Brooks was one of the recruited, uh, Brooks, who was, uh, who recruited all three. The first 15-year-old, uh, Randy Harvey, who was last seen riding a bike down the street, he was killed days later at the apartment with a single gunshot to the head. So he was one of the ones that was killed with a gun. Okay. Two more victims, David Hillcrist and 13-year-old, uh, 13 and 16-year-old Gregory Winkle were abducted and killed together on the May of 1971. At this time, the missing use in the area had risen and the community was taking notice of the disappearances. It is noted that he would hold on to some of these kids before killing them, sometimes for days after the abductions. And then <clears throat> Elmer, remember this guy, Elmer Wayne Henley had been a lifelong friend of one of the victims, David Hillcrist, and helped lure him to Dean's house. But after this, Elmer began to help Dean and recruit uh, kids with David. Also, he would be out there posting reward signs for the friends that he helped get abducted as to play it off that he had nothing to do with it. Wow. Jeez. Yep. Man, these some dirt bags. Yeah, these are three. Now you have now you have three suspects in a ring that are kidnapping young teens in the Houston area and the disappearances. And, yeah. and here's the problem. Guess what the police's response is to all these missing boys? They're probably somewhere, I don't know, camping somewhere. The runaways, they'll come back. It's the wow. 60s, flower power. Mm -hmm. They're probably at Woodstock. Wow. <laughs> took, it all took it all nonchalantly, man. Jeez. The cops did little or no investigating to all these cases in the beginning. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Oh, so so he 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 was just gonna keep going. Well, he did keep going, as I'll no, explain. He wasn't gonna stop if the police wasn't trying to do anything. If the, yeah, and, and here's the other thing. Here's the other twist. Can you guess the race of these kids? I'm gonna say white. Yes. Shockingly, you would think the cops would be like a bunch of white kids missing. Get him, Johnson. Get him. Wait, wait, wait. What is the race of Mr. Candyman himself? He's white, right? Yeah, he's white. Everyone in this story is pretty much all white. Yeah, that's very shocking. Because, because had you said they were black, I would have said that makes sense. Because back then, the police were racist. I'm just being real. No, you're right. You're right. They would have been like a black guy. We'll get on it. Give me a yeah, <laughs> because case in point, there's a case in Washington, D.C. where they have just barely put the FBI into works of six uh, murdered black young teens in the early uh, or no, in the late 70s. That has been cold ever since. And the families are finally starting to get some sort of traction on that case. So could, you can imagine, 
you know, that's what usually happens. A white woman disappears, this or that happens. They're on it like that, you know? And these are white boys disappearing in a Houston suburb. Nothing's happening. They're not, they're not attacking it. You know, I kind of, you said Elmer's this new guy. Elmer and Dean, I have no remorse for it whatsoever. David, I kind of feel sorry for him because he was once one of those kids who got manipulated mm-hmm. to doing these things, to doing his work. I mean, yeah, what he's doing is completely wrong. I, I don't have no remorse, but in some part of me, I feel kind of sorry for him. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I can see that. Let's see if you keep that up, though, as we move on. You'll see, because there's, right, there's a bunch of twists coming up right now. Get these twists. Yeah, we're going to get to some French twists. Um, <laughs> on August 17, 1971, Dean and David encountered a 17-year-old boy, um, Watson, uh, Watson Haney. Hold on, my notes froze here. Um, leaving, uh, they, they led uh, Ronald Watson Haney uh, walking to a, a movie theater. They led him and persuaded him to Dean's house to hang out. Okay. Uh, so he agreed and would never be seen again in September 1971. So that's another kid missing and dead. Hey. So in uh, Brooks uh, later stated that he had four more boys in the apartment before he helped him again. The the remains of those kids were never found. And so wow. it was like, yeah, there was a little period where he wasn't around, Brooks, and for some reason, you know, and Henley they weren't around. Dean got four kids by himself. Wow. So at this point, uh, Henley began to work more and more with a pair, um, helping raping boys. And um, but at this point, Henley was just saying that he he wasn't hanging around for the deaths. He was there for the sex and torture. And then he would leave. And then Dean would tell him, oh, these kids were sold into slavery. You know, sex slavery, or they came from sex slavery. So, he tried to play it off as as if they weren't murdered. Hmm. Wow! But that wasn't the truth. And then Henley would later find out the truth when Dean Coral, the candy man, also offered him two hundred dollars per kid and a brand new car in '72. Wow! Yep. He's driving them. Yeah. So then Henley and David came across Frank Aguirre who was leaving his work, which was a diner just blocks from Dean's house. Henley called him over to Dean's van, promising weed and beer. As soon as he came over to the van, they jumped him and threw him in the van, all three of them. Handcuffed the kid to the van, taped him up, took him back to the apartment where they they did all three phases, rape, torture, and murder of the kid. Wow. So... This was this was an ongoing thing. Uh, let's see. That's sick, man. Yeah, this is pretty bad. So, Brooks stated to Henley that this was sadistic. Once he witnessed the murders, in participation with, at, at Schuler Street, or the kids that he uh, found at Schuler Street later on, mm-hmm. and Henley assisted Coral and Brooks in the abduction and murder of two young. Two other young kids, Billy Balsh and Johnny DeLome. Um, in Brooks' confession, he stated that both youths both use were tied to Cor- Coral's bed, tortured and raped. Henley manually strangled Balsh, then shouted, hey, Johnny, and shot DeLome in the forehead. So Henley, at this point, is murdering the, the, the two kids. 
Wow. And the two youths had pleaded for their lives, but were ignored by Henley. So Henley off both those kids. So at some point he was, he was trying to say, oh, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. You know, I just helped to abduct, abduct and I may have participated in the rapes. But now he's saying, you know, that they have, they have both of them saying that they murdered, that Henley murdered him. So he was participating. Um, wow. Then there was another one. During the time that Coriel uh, resided on Schuler Street when he moved, the trio lured the 19-year-old Billy Ridgener to his house. Ridgener was tied to the plywood board, uh, tortured and abused by Coral. Brooks later claimed that he persuaded Coral to allow uh, Ridgener to be released, and the youth, and the youth was allowed was to be allowed arrested. To on another, on another during the time that Coral resided uh, at Schuler Street, Henley knocked Brooks unconscious, and he entered the house. Coral then tied Brooks to the bed, assaulted the youth uh, repeatedly before releasing him. Despite the assault, Brooks continued to assist Coral in the abduction. So Henley and Dean turned on Brooks, and yet they, uh, Brooks still turns around and falls back in line. So, if, okay, Brooks is the... 19 the the kid that he groomed from the yes from, mm -hmm. okay so uh, so because he let the other kid out and the other kid magically doesn't tell the cops the, really they continue to go on about their businesses business as usual and then to get back at brooks they they beat him and rape him and he's fine with it you know what i mean he doesn't he doesn't leave jeez wow. yeah so um, yeah. So after this, vacating the Schuler residence, so he left another apartment. Coral moved to an apartment in Westcott Towers, where in the summer of 1972, he is known to kill two other victims. The first of three victims is 17-year-old Stephen Sickman, uh, was last seen at a party held at the Heights shortly before midnight. The youth, the youth was savagely uh, bludgeoned in the chest with a blunt force uh, instrument and was strangled and buried in a boat shed. Approxim hey. Approximately one month later, on, on August 21st, a 19-year-old named Roy Bunton was abducted while walking to his job as assistant uh, Houston shoe store. Bunton was shot twice in the head and buried in the boat shed as well. Neither victim was named by Brooks or Henley as being a victim of coral, but both youths were identified in 2011. And we'll get to that because there's two places 2011 yeah there's That's two, a long time there's two places where uh where her, he buried the bodies basically wow yeah so on, on october 7 uh, october 2nd 1972 um henley and brooks encountered two uh youths wally j simino and richard hembry henley and brooks spotted the two kids walking by henry's house Simino and Hembry were incited by, uh, into Brooks' Corvette, because remember, he's got a Corvette now, driven to Coral's Westcott apartment, promised, by, uh, promised a party. But before, um, before they were allowed to leave, once they got there, because they were both drinking and smoking weed, um, what is it called? Uh, they were both uh, shot in the mouth by Henley. And uh, strength, uh, and the other, or no, one was shot in the mouth by Henley accidentally because he was showing off a gun, and then the other one was tortured and strangled, and then um, their bodies would be found in a Highland Beach house later on. Um, 
Yeah, so a minimum of 10 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 were murdered from February and November of 1972, five whom were buried on the High Island Beach and five in Dean Quarles boat shed. Hmm. So on, December, on January 20th, 1973, Coral moved to an address of Wirt Road in Spring Branch, District of Houston. Within two weeks of moving to the address, he killed a 17-year-old Joseph Lyles. Lyles was known to both Coral and Brooks. He had lived on Antoine Drive, the same street where Brooks resided in 1973, on which on March 7th, um, Coral vacated uh, this uh, Whit Road apartment and moved to 2020 Lamar Drive in an address where his father had lived in Pasadena, Houston. So at this time, um, there was a little, I'll, I'll get to this, there was about a four, a four month, uh, uh, what do you call it? Gap. Four month gap. Yeah, four month gap of no killings because Dean was exactly. suffering health issues. Um, so after those, uh, those health issues went down, Dean went right back to work. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. I'm getting I'm getting to the end, guys. I'm getting to the end. This guy is sick, man. Yeah, he's pretty man. sick and twisted. Um, so nonetheless, from June, um, Coral's rate of killings increased dramatically. And both Henley and Brooks um Brooks later testified to increase the level of brutality of murders uh committed while Coral resided at Lamar Drive. Henley Henley later compared the acceleration and frequency of killings and the increase to the brutality uh, exhibited towards Cor uh, by Coral to his victims like a bloodlust. So he was going more and more just balls to the wall, like I'm killing more brute, brute with brute force. On June 4th, Henley, Coral abducted a 15-year-old uh, youth that was last seen alive by his father on 31st Street. After three days of torture, Lawrence was strangled and buried uh, in Lake St. Sam Rayburn, less than two weeks later, uh, what is it, uh, Raymond Stanley Blackburn was abducted, strangled, and buried in the same uh, lake. So two back-to-back. -back. On July 1973, he abducted uh, Homer Luis Garcia, 15 years old. Uh, he, had, uh, he made him phone his mother uh, days later to say that he was all right and just out, you know, going to be leaving for a little while. And unfortunately... He was murdered five days later. A 17-year-old had written a note to his family before he was shot in the head, buried on the beach. Um, 1973, David Brooks was married, uh, had married his uh, pregnant fiance because, you know, David is, is still trying to live a life and is still under um, Coral's, um, what is it called, control? Mm -hmm. He marries uh, his pregnant fiance and is temporarily away from the victims and all this other crap that's going on while Henley continues to help rape and murder victims. There's more just to, to, to name a few, a 13 year old um, boy was killed from South Houston and um, another small blonde boy that was never um, identified was, um, was murdered as well. So the body count right now as it stands- Is that 20? It's 20. Yeah. With seven that were unconfirmed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yo, that's one sick. Yeah, that's one sick. Yeah. yeah this guy's pretty oh. bad. Now, uh, here's here's the problem that here here's the 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 main twist of this one. Okay. 
Okay, so uh, let's see. I want to get to this part right here because I have to fast forward because of time on here. Okay, so here, here's where everything changes. You know, Dick, you know, Brooks is, is a, you know, he has, he has friends or whatever. They're still young because he's a young kid himself. He's got a baby with his fiance or whatever. Um, so Dean tells him to get a couple friends to come over to the house and to have, and he's going to throw a party. He wants a couple boys. Henley invited a 19-year-old boy, um, Timmy, Timothy uh, Cordell Carley, to the, to the house party. David Brooks brought two friends to the house. Um, he brought uh, this Williams kid and then Rhonda Louise. He made a mistake. He brought a girl. This pissed off uh, Dean. He then spiked their drinks. A lot of them got drunk. It was late in the evening. Mm -hmm. um, Henley, uh, Henley awoke. Well, actually, it was Henley that, that was uh, that brought the brought the girl. Mm -hmm. uh, Henley awoke to find himself. Now, now, remember Brooks. Okay, let me start over here because this is where I messed up. I put the Hen Henley instead of Brooks here, or Brooks yeah. instead of Henley. Henley brought the two the two teens, the boy and the girl. Okay. And they went to smoke weed, hang out, drink. Dean Coral uh, got pissed off that the girl was there. Brooks is with his fiance, so Brooks is not in the picture at this point, at for this particular party. Okay. Henley woke up from being knocked out or whatever, just passed out from either whatever he was given the drink or whatever or the, or the weed, and they were all tied up. So Henley's tied up, and basically, uh, Dean's telling him, you know what, I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna kill you. You screwed up. Blah blah. So Henley is is pleading for his life, telling him, look, man, look, look, I'm, I'm on your side. You know, I'm not going to say nothing. I screwed up. We're, you know, I want to rape the girl and kill her. You know, just let me do this and we'll kill both of them and we'll dispose of them. And he's just telling Dean everything he wants to hear. Right. So Dean, Dean gets the idea and Dean's naked at this point because he wanted to rape Henley. So he goes, okay, well, I'll rape the other boy. You take the girl and then we'll do what we have to do with them and we'll kill him. So, with all that being said, Henley uses this opportunity to get up. The girl's freaked out because she's hearing this and saying, oh my God, don't kill me, don't rape me, blah, blah. And he's just like, shh, I'm gonna take care of this. So Dean cut him loose and he's taking the girl to the room. He knows where Dean had a, a handgun stashed. Takes the handgun out, confronts Dean. Mm -hmm. Dean charges at him. Henley shoots him three times. Damn. And calls the cops. The cops come, but by the time they get there, Dean is dead. So Dean Coral dies by Henley's hand. Twist. Wow. Damn, man. So Dean Coral committed twenty, at least twenty to twenty-three murders that they know of. And why I said that they were finding bodies in 2011 because they found, they excavated underneath his uh, summer home and by that by that uh, little beach community. They also on uh, a lake, and they also found bodies in his um, boathouse. So, yeah, they, they barely identified a couple of them just a few years ago. Dang. Seventies. Wow. Yeah, that was seventies. Wow. God. They probably had to like check the <laughs> bones and dental records. Oh yeah, big time. Dental records came into play on this one. And here's the other thing about this case too, is that. Um, so when they went to when they went to court, obviously the Houston police had dropped the ball on this one uh, because they were believing all the letters because 
one thing I left out was that they, he had forced a lot of these kids to write letters to their parents and the cops never investigated nothing. They never checked out any alibis, nothing. So basically they just took the words of, of these letters or, or supposed phone calls. Wow. Yep. That's, wow. What the heaney? Okay, well, let me let me start off with uh, Brooks. Brooks got uh, 99 years, uh, <laughs> avoided the death penalty because of the fact that he helped out as far as finding the bodies, identifying some of them. He had uh, a deal. Yeah, he made a deal. He told everything well, that he knew. <laughs> He's done, but he got Yeah, he like, saved his life. Him. Yeah, he's like, and, I'll ride in prison, just don't kill me. <laughs> yeah, and then he he basically came out and was just like, okay, you know, I'm gonna um, do uh, my penance or whatever, and, and and explain exactly what happened. Um, as far as Henley, Henley got six. Uh, what shocks me is he, this is a case in Texas. He should have been um, what do you call it? Uh, what is it called? Um, executed. He got 594 years, so six uh, life terms. I don't understand that, man. <laughs> yeah. No, unless you Methuselah, you ain't gonna live that long. So you. <laughs> so both guys, both guys are still alive. Uh, Henley is sixty-five years or sixty-three years old, and Brooks is sixty-five years old. And they're both gonna oh, right. speak. They're still gonna. They're still gonna live probably another fifteen years or more. You know how they get down in prison, man. When they find out your what you've done. When it comes yep. to kids, so they probably getting their just due. I hope so. They probably enjoying mm -hmm. it, but you know. And by the way, I, ha I had to cut a lot of this short, including what happened with the police and the community, because we literally got a minute and a half left on the video because we're doing a Zoom. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, that's that's uh, any final thoughts, guys? Got a minute. My thoughts is how could anyone be that sick, man? Like. Yeah, I've heard a few of your stories, man, but nothing like this, man. Like, how are you gonna rape someone, kids, boys, and yeah. tort and kill the like? Nah, that's sick, man. Something's got to be wrong in their head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he he basically, you know, the scrotums. I mean, he he. There was things wedged in those body parts too that I didn't get to just the uh, to uh, bring up. More than likely mutilated them. Yeah, he mutilated them sexually and and just there's a. <sighs> Bite marks. I mean, you name it, wow. he did it. So I couldn't get into all of it. So if you, oh, uh, if you're glad that I didn't get into all of it, uh, thank Zoom for this one. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Zoom. <laughs> thank you, Zoom. <laughs> yeah, that's nasty. For any, you can tell. You can tell us later. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can tell us later, man. Because for anyone to share that, that's that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Yep. Oh man, that's just that's crazy. <laughs> well, that was our episode of The Candy Man. So when you watch Willy Wonka again and you hear that song, it'll probably have a little different meaning to it now. Um, Thank you you won't be able to look at Willy Wonka the same. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. This is part two of the story we were just talking about, about The Candy Man. And this is a little extra for you guys. We did mention the disclaimer earlier about how gruesome it is <sighs> for the next 10 minutes or so. We're going to talk about the details that we left out due to the fact that we were recording on Zoom. So 
for this little extra piece, Todd is going to give you details that he didn't mention earlier that I will warn you is definitely not good to hear. So yeah. take it away, man. What were the details that we unfortunately left out? Well, there's a few details. Like I said, um, Brooks was able to save his life by, uh, by throwing Henley into the bus, talking about Dean Quarles, all of his sadistic stuff. Henley would do the same thing. Um, he avoided the death penalty because of the fact that he still should have got it regardless, but he did uh, lead what Brooks didn't know to some of the other bodies by the, uh, the uh, boat shed. So Henley agreed to accompany the police uh, to the Coral's Bolt Shed in Southwest Houston, where he claimed that the bodies of most of the victims could be found. Inside Coral's Bolt Shed, police found half-stripped car, which turned into, uh, which turned out to have the stolen bike from one of the kids. Oh. Wow. Two sacks of lime, and we all know it. If you're, if you know murdering, uh, lime is used to uh, cover the smell and also help decompose the body. <clears throat> um, he had, uh, what is it called? Uh, they excavated the area by the shed, unearthing remains of more victims in various stages of decomposition. Most okay. uh, most bodies were found wrapped in thick, clear plastic, sh uh, plastic sheeting. Some victims had been shot, some had been strangled. Some had uh, still uh, hair wrapped around their necks mm. or ropes. Damn. And all the victims were, had been sodomized most of the victims were found to bore evidence of sexual uh, <clears throat> torture. Pubic hairs have been plucked out. Their, gen oh. their genitals had been chewed. Oh. Wow. Objects. Oh. <laughs> Are you guys okay? No. Matt, are you okay? I'm all right. <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. Objects have been inserted into their rectums. And glass... Glass rods had been uh, inserted through their urethra, then smashed. So, if you know what a, if you know what your urethra is, it's the where you urinate out of your uh, manhood. Oh my! They, they put little, they put little glass in there and and would like stomp or smash their penis to break inside. No! Oh! I gotta pee. <laughs> and like I said, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. Oh God! <laughs> they wow. were also like, also we talked about they, um, like their genitals being chewed and pieces removed from that. They also had a baseball bat shoved up one of the kids' rectums, uh, uh, where I broke, uh, I guess, his intestines and and stomach lining. Um. There was cloth rags that were inserted into the victim's mouth and adhesive tape over them to muffle their screams. So even if they tried to scream, no, no bueno. Yeah. Uh. Uh, yeah, they uh, also the mouth of the third victim unearthed on August 8th was so a gap that the upper and lower teeth were visible leading investigators to theorize the youth had died with a scream on his lips. Yikes. Man. Uh, uh, oh, I feel sorry for y'all. Yeah. They all had violent ends. 
Yeah, a lot of the uh, a lot of the kids had severed uh, genitals. Um, some of them, the pieces were put in plastic bags with the bodies. Uh, others had fractured ribs. Um, just a whole bunch of stuff uh, here. Let's see. And then also, I'm going through my notes here. So at this time, the killing spree was the worst, uh, worst in American history. It exceeded 25 murders. Uh, when uh, attributed um, attributed to a, a man, Juan Corona, who had been arrested in uh, California in 1971 for killing 25 uh, people. This was the worst um, mass murder until another one we'll get into. Uh, John Wayne Gacy killed 33 young boys Damn. in 1978 in uh, Chicago. You want to go for the record, huh? Yeah, he was he was the one. I don't know if you guys know John Wayne Gacy, but he's the one that used to dress as a clown and do kids parties. I've heard of that. Yeah, this guy, that guy, I don't know if we'll get into him, but just a spoiler alert on him. He buried all his he literally had no more room underneath his house. It was his uh, underneath his house was filled with with boys bodies that he kept. Wow. Yeah. These people are sick and statistics. Uh, uh, I'm still I'm still messed up on the one where he shoved a piece of glass through their little pee hole and yeah. stomp that one right. You might want to wait a while, Matt, before you eat dinner. Mm. <laughs> well so so I was I was wrong on the numbers. It's actually twenty seven that are confirmed that he murdered. Uh two of which are suspected. One has yet still to be identified. Did it. So that's where we're at on that. See now, see now, now it sucks that he died with just three bullet bullet holes, and he needed to suffer, man. Yeah, he never he never got exposed. Um, and other than those two kids, no one else really knew what happened. The one kid that they let away never opened his mouth. Um, so it's unfortunate that this guy went on to kill more. I wonder if the my only thing is I wonder if the kid they let go by the help of Brooks ever felt bad and was like, damn, you know, maybe I could have saved fifteen or sixteen more kids. You never know. I'm quite sure. I'm quite sure. Yeah. But that's Dean Coral, man. Damn. Yeah, man. I I know vengeance isn't ours, but on this case. Oh, he needed to get some better than three shots to the chest. And he uh, died rather quick. So it wasn't like, you know, he suffered and he went into surgery or something like that. He, he, was, dead, right he was dead before the cops came. Dang. Oh, wow. Yeah, I feel sorry for all those boys. Like, seriously, they that, that was yeah. torture. That, that shouldn't be. No one should go through that, man yep. or female. Yep. And to think – it wasn't just sometimes like quick. It was, you know, they were murdered. Three days. Yeah, two, three, four days. They he, never were, kept, they were, he, he never kept them past four days, but still, that's crazy. They, they felt everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I see why Todd said that. Uh, I'm affected <laughs> by it. I don't even know how I'm gonna get up and go to the bathroom right now without thinking about it. Well, uh, oh, and I forgot about the nipples again. The nipples were were ripped <laughs> off when uh, they were still alive. 
<sighs> Didn't you have an experience like that? Well, when I was surfing, I, I cut myself and my nipple was dangling. That freaking hurt like you know you don't know what, man. God. So you, so you, uh, uh, I you had the sensation. Touch. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, I still don't know what nipples are for for a boy, but like, <laughs> like what what their use is. But all I know is that mine is numb on the left side. Really? Yeah, when it's cold, it, it really hurts for some reason. Grab <laughs> <laughs> my nipples now, man, for no reason. I, don't know. <laughs> I know, every time he's going to be like this, all of a sudden, he's going to be like, oh. Yeah. Stories, man. <laughs> well, that was part two of the story that was recorded earlier about Mr. Dean. AKA the Candyman. That mm -hmm. guy was sick and all his minions that helped him out. Unfortunately for those little boys who had to suffer, this was a tough one. But um man, that sucks. Thank you, Todd, for narrating that story for us, as you do you well. It. And uh for those who are listening in, once again, if you want to hear the first part of the show, find us on our uh iHeartRadio, find us on Spotify. Podbean, or any other uh, podcast streams. Just look us up under the Grinding Truth Crime, and you can listen to the first part and all our previous recordings that we've done in the past. So, this has been your host, Maddie Matt, along with our narrator, Todd Fox, and our other host of the show, Big Renee. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're signing off. Have a good one. Later. Later. Later.